0: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the, if you want your great, 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 great grandkids to have a good life, start goofing off immediately edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, for the entire episode, I'm joined by Stephen Johnson, author of a new book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. It's out in the U.S., and it will be out in the U.K. later this month. It's a history of how our amusements, the things people do and see for pleasure and delight and enchantment, often have astonishing effects in the more serious realms of life much later on. Stephen, thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Okay, uh, I want to start at the end, as it were, Uh, specifically with the end of your book. You go through the psychological and neurological processes that happen in our brains, when we're in a state of play. So why don't we do this? Why don't you start by defining how you look at play, because we're talking about adult play, uh, and then take us through some of those processes.
1: Yeah, I mean, the book has a very broad definition of play. It's really kind of a combination of play and delight, really. It's things that we are doing purely for the fun of it, things that have no strict utilitarian kind of value or survival value or adaptive value, but that are just... Enjoyable and kind of playful in that sense. So it includes, as we'll get into, games, um, but also fashion and spices, you know, things that are not necessarily functional, but that are interesting and surprising and delightful in some way. The argument that the book is trying to make, which is kind of leads into this last chapter, is that while the history of those things is very interesting, hopefully people would like to hear about that history because it's a part of our lives, it is also interesting because those seemingly trivial pursuits have throughout history led to significant innovations and changes in society that that play turns out to be a one of the prime movers of historical change uh, right up there with the other kind of factors that you would you know normally think of in terms of you know conquest and tribalism and and religious belief yeah,
0: high-minded sober the stuff, stuff you learned like, in high
1: school you know world history classes play is actually it's not just this thing that happens at the margin it actually kind of drives a lot of change and a lot of new ideas so the the brain science mystery of it that I tried to touch on a little bit in the in the last chapter is why why, why, why do these things that are so you know fun and seemingly frivolous why are they such kind of revolutionary forces and Part of what it gets down to, I think, is that when we're playing, one of the definitions of play is that it involves surprise, kind of controlled surprise. So a game is boring when it's not surprising, right? When you know exactly what's going to happen, it's very predictable or one side always wins. Um, A lot of the work of kind of devising rules for games is coming up with ways to keep it from being predictable, right? So you you don't know what's going to happen, and that's what's interesting about it.
0: You call it the novelty bonus, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, music is like this, right? Music sits in in a sweet spot of, you know, just enough surprise to keep you interested, but not so much that you're disoriented. If the song is too predictable, it's too poppy, or you've heard it a thousand times, you stop being interested in it, if the song is completely atonal and dissonant and there's no perceivable pattern there, it's hard to listen to, it's not enjoyable. So it's it's kind of surprising, controlled surprises is the zone that seems to get us interested. So the question is why we have that appetite for surprise. And this is one place where there actually, I think, is an evolutionary argument for it, that it makes sense that our brains, and we know this actually from studying the brains of even newborns, when We are making some kind of prediction about what is coming in the world, and reality kind of contradicts that prediction or or, surprises us with some experience that we weren't expecting. Our brains are wired to pay attention to that. that This is a fundamental way in which we learn about the world is we make predictions about what's going to happen, and then, oh, that didn't happen, so why? Hmm, I have to lean forward and think about this for a bit. And so we have this novelty bonus when something new appears that we weren't expecting, we have this largely kind of dopamine-regulated kind of response to it where we kind of lean into it and think about it and find it interesting and, and appealing. So play, in a sense, is this mechanism that exploits this capacity of the, uh, of the human mind or this interest in surprising things. But what makes it so innovative is that this is a, a kind of phenomenon where the goalposts keep moving, right? What, what you grew up with as a kid – Um, that was surprising to your parents is not surprising to you because it's always been part of your world. And so culture is constantly devising new ways to surprise the brain, uh, and that causes us to seek out these new experiences or these new technologies or these new forms of gameplay or whatever it is. So it's constantly driving us to come up with new ideas to, to kind of feed that surprise engine.
0: I like how you frame it as kind of a competing battle of instincts, right? When we think of instincts, we think of... Things that help us survive, there's a fear instinct, there's the things we do to help ourselves uh, sort of self-perpetuate, right? Not yeah. just humans, but you know other kinds of other species, I guess. The play instinct is more, uh, I guess, uh, exploratory. It's expansionary, and it's every bit as much a part of us as all these other serious things that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, one of the things I think is so cool about it as a concept is that it it kind of complicates the traditional nature-nurture kind of genes versus culture opposition. You know, that we tend to be like, all right, this is in our genes and this is the way we've always behaved. And this is, uh, you know, the traditional way we talk about kind of our genetic or evolutionary kind of mindset is kind of conservative. Like, this is the way it's always been. We have these basic needs. We can never get outside of them. And then we have these cultural forces that are causing us to invent new things and change who we are. The surprise instinct kind of plays at both tables in a really interesting way. It is an instinct. There's an evolutionary reason why we should be interested in in learning from surprising facts about the world or experiences. But that instinct prods us into inventing new things and changing Mm -hmm. who we are. And so you see there's a kind of a, I think, a pretty refreshing kind of mix of nature and nurture at work
0: there. Yeah, this reminded me, by the way, of a book by another former uh, guest on this podcast, uh, Tim Harford. He wrote this book called Messy, uh, which is about the virtues of introducing deliberately some messiness into your life, right? That everything shouldn't always be perfectly neatly organized. And the reason is that when you introduce messiness, you also introduce a kind of diversity of thought. And there seems to be kind of a neat parallel there between messiness and play, the stuff where you don't know... What the outcome of any particular game is going to be or, you know, when you when you even when you're having banter with your friends, that kind of thing, you don't know where it's going. So there's something exploring about that that whole process.
1: Yeah, no, exactly right. In fact, there are a lot of connections with Tim's book, which is a great book. The diversity one. I'm actually writing a new book now, which is a lot about. It's about decision making, and and there's just a lot of science that shows that the more diverse our environments, the more diverse our influences, the you know the better we get at making decisions. There, there's a big thing theme in Wonderland about globalization, right? One of the one of the things that comes out of the the quest for delight and play is more contact between people distributed all around the world, you know, the spice trade, which maybe we'll talk about, you know, the kind of original global marketplace, all in the pursuit of non-nutritional interesting flavors that have no, you know, actual, you know, function in terms of our body's needs, but they just taste great. And out of that, we created these huge global networks. So when we say that play is exploratory, it's literally i mean it is like globally exploratory on some level and that it forces us to seek out new experiences and sometimes those new experiences come from other cultures and so that interest in new things has has created a, a lot of the global diversity that we now kind of take for granted but right. a lot of it came out of these you know kind of surprising delightful things
0: There's a nice symmetry there. It's both uh, adventurous in the mind and it leads to actual adventures uh, out in the world as well. Okay, so we talked a little bit about what happens in your head Mm. as you play. Let's talk about the societal mechanism here, uh, how play leads to these amazing effects later on, and then we'll go through some of the specific examples. I don't know exactly why my neurons were firing this way when I read your book, but it actually reminded me of Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth plays, mm. um, which are about many things, but one of the things they're about uh, is the tension between the worlds of play and the world of, you know, serious work and mm. achievement and that kind of thing. And on the one hand, you have, uh, you know, sort of carousing, it looks like a waste of time, um, you know, staging spontaneous plays as the characters did, playing pranks on each other and even the sort of bad stuff they got up to, like drinking too much or sleeping around or stealing purses or whatever, never really amounted to true villainy. It's more like shenanigans, Mm. right? And you have the other world of actually the king himself, which is all about, you know, dignity and war and matters of state and that kind of thing. And we're all kind of pulled between these two worlds. And your book in a way melds those two worlds together because you're right that play for its own sake is great and everybody deserves a break especially these days, right? right? But actually there are these weird reverberating effects that you can never quite see as the play is happening that end up as these dramatic, important inventions. And sometimes, you know, there there are some great things that come of it and there are some terrible things that come of it. What broadly are the mechanisms that lead from play now to something really incredible in this kind of serious, noble-minded realm of life way later on?
1: That's a great question and mean great – I have to go back and <laughs> read the <in> the Boy <laughs> plays. No, no one has brought that up in any rate, That's great. I mean there are kind of two ways to think about it. One is technological ingenuity, right? We want to build some kind of device and contraption to amuse and delight, and that causes us to do very clever things. Um, and there are lots of examples of that in the book, which – I'm sure we'll get to. But there's another one which is maybe closer to home in in the Henry IV sense in what you were talking about. There's there's a big theme near the end of the book about spaces designed for leisure and amusement. Um, So it's not just about building a technology but about creating literally kind of a room or an establishment that is designed to be a place of escape. And this is a kind of innovation in and of itself, right? We think of innovation as being like the iPod or something like that, but in fact creating institutions that... Are designed for things like leisure and play. The world is now filled with them, right? If you just look around society, from IMAX theaters and amusement parks to Starbucks to all these different kind of places, many of which did not exist 200 years ago, and and maybe the first space that kind of was created, you know, thousands of years ago, that kind of fits that category is the tavern or the pub. Right, the, you know, a drinking establishment that is specifically not a work establishment. It's not home. It's not the church. It's this kind of semi-private, semi-public space where you go. There's alcohol there, and it's a place to escape and unwind and have a bit of fun. That's a nice invention, right? For those of us who like to go to a bar every now and then, it's a, it's a. It, the world is, for the most part, probably better off that we have them, or at least some of us would think that. But very clearly. The, the kind of unintended consequence, the kind of world-changing side of the bar and the pub is that bars and pubs and taverns have played a crucial role in the history of political and kind of social revolutions, right? For, I mean in our country, for instance, you cannot tell the story of the American Revolution without talking about the tavern kind of culture of uh, particularly colonial New England, right? Those were the meeting places where the Declaration of Independence was read aloud, where common sense was read aloud, where these kind of seditious thoughts were kind of fermented – And think of the gay rights movement, right? I mean, you can't tell the story of that without thinking about Stonewall, where we're quite near, or the Black Hat in L.A. So there's something about creating this interesting new kind of space where you're more relaxed, where there's whatever intoxicant of alcohol adds to the story, where people are freer to experiment with new identities, with new political postures, with a semi-public Identity as a gay man or or lesbian, whatever it might be, the, the bar kind of introduced that space, and it clearly changed serious history in in kind of multiple ways.
0: Okay, uh, now let's go through the six domains of play that are in your book. Let's start with fashion and shopping, essentially as a, a precursor to the industrial revolution, but also, and this was new to me, uh, as a kind of causal or explanatory yeah. factor for the Industrial Revolution.
1: Yeah. So the the traditional story about industrialization is you have these, you know, brilliant engineers and entrepreneurs in the middle of the 1700s who start coming up with these extraordinary steam-powered machines in the factory system. And eventually, after a lot of turmoil, this creates a kind of an upper middle class that is affluent enough to do things like go shopping in grand department stores in the middle of the 19th century, right? But in fact, Really, what happens is is kind of the reverse of this. In the late 1600s, 1600, 1680, 1685, this craze develops among well-to-do women in London more than anywhere else for this exotic new fabric, calico, calico and chintz, cotton fabrics with beautiful dyes that really revolved around an innovation in and both in the fabric of cotton itself, but also the dyeing, which they, the patterns in calico and chintz. Could survive being washed multiple times unlike most other pattern fabrics at that point, and so you could get this beautiful pattern and it would stick around after you cleaned it. People go crazy for this; it creates you know basically uh, a huge trade imbalance with India, the East India Company makes its vast fortune, but what it also does is has this devastating blow on the traditional wool industry in England because all of a sudden these women are wearing these soft beautiful fabrics also they're wearing them as underwear cuz up until that point people wore wool underwear in rainy cold mm-hmm. <laughs> London which you could imagine was not all that delightful. So there's this huge political backlash because these traditional wool industries are being destroyed by this by this new you know interest mm-hmm. in cotton and all of a sudden, people are really angry at these women, and they start writing poems and plays. They start calling them calico madams. Like there's something about their uh, sensual embrace of this exotic fabric from another country that's betraying the, the British culture. That it's kind of like a "Make England's wool industry great again" kind of yeah. movement
0: that starts, you know. And demonization via protectionism. The 17th century. I mean, century it's, it's exactly it's
1: the same story. It's the beginning of that story in a way, and. For a while, they actually banned calico and chintz from being imported briefly, but then at the same time, inspired by this, precisely inspired by this, another group of people say, well, what if we actually could make these fabrics here in England using this new steam-powered semi-automated technology that we're starting to understand how to do? And that is the birth of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that is, it was inspired directly by this delightful new interest in this fabric from from another part of the world. And so... The idea of fashion goes from being this kind of fringe benefit of industrialization to being one of the prime movers that set it in motion. And, and if you don't include those women shopping for Calico and Chintz in 1690 when you tell that story, you're just not telling a complete version of what happened.
0: Yeah, I like the framing and I should note that you did introduce the language of economics briefly here where you said that you know most explanations of the Industrial Revolution – our supply side so Mm -hmm. we think of uh, you know what England was able to do with coal and we think of how the environment of ideas was finally coming together there aren't that many uh, explanations I've seen until your book that focus entirely on the demand side what actually drove this and what's curious about it is that this is the first example I think in the book um, where you show that play leads to a kind of uh, egalitarian effect right where the women wanted this uh, clothes were uh, many of them upper middle class. It was the first time that they were able to essentially pass themselves off as true aristocracy uh, in the streets of London um, or Paris or wherever this was happening, even though they themselves were not actually uh, the aristocracy. but They looked there, like it.
1: There was a very distinct kind of blurring of the of the visible lines between the, the proper aristocracy and then the kind of like upwardly mobile kind of upper middle class that you, you I mean I have multiple quotes in the book about this it was it was clearly a site of concern for the more conservative parts of society there are no, a number of quotes in the book of people saying like well now that you know a, a gentleman's butler can dress like the gentleman we will uh, you know all bets are off right you know you can't with the, all the kind of traditional you know rank and hierarchy of society is going to you know dissolve because you, you don't have this kind of semiotic distinction between these two classes, uh, thanks to the, the the clothes they're wearing. And, you know, there are a number of, and Bradell probably most famously, there are a number of historians who have argued that the interest in fashion, again, as trivial as it might seem, both broke down the kind of lines between the different classes in terms of how that they dressed, um, which paved the way for other more traditional kind of political revolutions. But it also created this sensibility in a society which said the traditional way of doing it, the, we've always dressed this way, this is the way people dress, having that shift into a fashion model where it's like, well, every year we're going to reinvent the way we dress. We're going to come up with a new model. We're interested in new approaches to things. We're interested in new looks. That that translated over into just a, a general openness to change that had more serious kind of political consequences. So it's, you know, Brad Ellis' line was like, it may not be an accident that some of the first nation states to have true democratic revolutions were also the ones who were the most interested in fashion.
0: This is also the first uh, example in the book of the uglier side of right. what play can lead to. This was all driven by a, a newfound demand for cotton. Uh, and of course, now we have to talk about the slave trade, the exploitation of labor uh, in the factories in Manchester and the rest of England, not uh, something that you know we can look back on without a big sense of shame.
1: Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a big kind of point in the book which is to say in in general the expansion of leisure and delight and, and the democratization of leisure and delight that more people around the world can get to do these things that are demonstrably fun and interesting is a good story it's a story of progress but the the main point is that the pursuit of leisure and delight has changed the world and in many many cases particularly in the kind of initial response to it those changes were disastrous if if you factor the dependence on the cotton crop that developed in the American South, and thus then the dependence on slavery, you you could make the argument that for at least the first hundred or two hundred years uh, of its life, the introduction of cotton as a fabric into the West was the worst thing that happened in the world. You know, and, in terms and the, of and actual industrialization, suffering. also right, was right. Brutal the factory system cities. was was brutal, and you know there are a lot of people who believe that had the South not been dependent on cotton economically, that Slavery actually would have been abolished earlier, and we might not have actually had to have had the Civil War. But because cotton was so important to the economy of the South and because slavery was so embedded in that, they were much less likely to give it up.
0: Yeah, uh, Let's look at a quick 20th century example of the role of fashion and shopping in the development of cities. Yeah. Uh, a big story of uh, Victor Gruen and his – Brief partnership with Walt Disney. What's that story? Yeah, one the, I've always been obsessed <laughs> with Disney.
1: And so one of the best things about this book is that Disney keeps showing up in all the different chapters because uh, he's so relevant to this topic. So Victor Gorin was this fascinating figure, a kind of European avant-garde socialist who emigrated the same week as Freud, actually, to escape the Nazis, became initially a like a window designer, like a shop window designer in New York. And then started increasingly to design these kind of shopping experiences. I think he called himself an experienced designer, which was a very Disney-like phrase. And eventually he designs the first shopping mall and becomes kind of famous for designing a, a number of shopping malls across the U.S. But his vision for what the shopping mall was, was going to be was very different from what eventually got built. He really wanted to create the sense of an old... European pedestrian city. And so he saw this kind of pedestrian center with lots of shops around it as only part of a larger kind of urbanist project. And then you would also have residences where people would live and you would have some office space and a bunch of other services in addition to this kind of shared commercial space. So it would create this little walkable downtown. And this idea was kind of taken out from under him, and instead of surrounding the shopping mall with, you know, residences and and, and workspaces, they surrounded it with parking lots. <laughs> yeah. And he eventually kind of renounces his his creation. He says <laughs> some line where he says, "I will no longer pay alimony for these bastard developments" or something like that. But th- but that idea that he had ends up getting inside the head of Walt Disney, and Disney's plans for. Uh, what he was calling Epcot, um, which he was developing the last years of his life and he kind of suddenly gets cancer and dies within six months of being diagnosed. Disney was trying to build one of these cities that Grun had kind of sketched out, and it was going to be a true city, not uh, the, what they eventually built at Epcot is just a theme park. They didn't do anything of what he was trying to do. If you read through the description of it, it's a really interesting model. There are all the all these interesting mass transit ideas that that Disney had, and it's kind of a shame that they never tried to build it actually. I hope someone someday will try and build it. A
0: pedestrian urban dream, but I, I wanna kinda emphasize the scale of the nightmare for Gruen, which was that he wanted to create a walkable city with mass transit where everything moved, you know, very cleanly and easily it ended up being that he, his vision took yeah. people out of the cities because they now saw that they could live in suburbia and still get everything they wanted because of the existence of the shopping mall. I mean, it was exactly the opposite yeah. of what he wanted. And you've got this great point in the book where you bring up Jane Jacobs and how the idea behind a city is that it is not always a good idea to plan everything so perfectly the way Victor Gruen wanted because actually – that sense of things happening spontaneously is also what provides the novelty and the surprise and the delight of being in a city.
1: Yeah, and that was what eventually caught up with the mall. In in the United States at least malls are now kind of in decline, urban centers are are on the rise. And if you read through the descriptions of the first you know, the kind of rave reviews that the first shopping malls got. It They are new. They seem like the future. It's like a whole new way of shopping. It's wonderful. It's indoors. All the shops are there. There are these escalators. <laughs> you know, everybody's so, you know, amazed at this yeah. new experience. It sounded
0: like indoor carnivals.
1: Right, right. But then eventually, over time, people start to, you know, over a generation or two, people start to say, well, every mall looks exactly the same. I can, there. it's the same set of stores. It's the same layout. I mean, why, there's nothing interesting here. Whereas a city has this unique quality. Maybe it's got, you know, an in any bookstore that I've never been to, maybe it's got small boutiques. It's surprising. It's interesting, and so we've had the kind of backlash now. Not true necessarily in the in the developing world where there's you know the mega mall kind of phenomena is, is huge, but they'll probably go through that cycle as well.
0: Right? Maybe a, a certain amount of grittiness is just the price we have to pay um, for that kind of surprise and fun that we get from cities. Exactly. Okay, let's go to the next uh, the next domain. The next chapter is on music. Mm. Music you write served no initial evolutionary purpose and yet there were musical instruments before
1: there was writing? It's a very bizarre question and there have been whole books written about this mystery of why human beings seem to care so much about music. That chapter opens with these bone flutes that people have discovered, they think at least 50,000 years old, um, maybe even earlier. So bone flutes and we believe drums, although drums are less likely to survive just because of the nature of what they're made of. But we think that musical instrument design may date back almost 100,000 years. So you've got this situation where our early ancestors are living in a point where they've invented a very small number of things, right? They've got simple, you know, axes and they've got, you know, a spear and they have simple needles for sewing clothes and things like that. Um, The whole world is sitting in front of them you know, to invent, right, alphabets or wheels or all these other things that would be really functional. What do they invent? They invent flutes. <laughs> like, it just seems like a to- really a big waste of time when you've got so many problems. Why would you create something? All a flute does is create interesting, mathematically interesting, basically, waveforms in our ears that don't protect us against predators, they don't keep us warm in the winter, they don't help us reproduce directly, at least. But there's something about it that sound that reminds us of a bird or just sounds unlike nature in some way that we're drawn to. And in fact, one of the fascinating things about music, which is kind of the most abstract of art forms, it it has also been the most technologically advanced until maybe very recently, just the sheer number of musical instruments invented over time. But that history, music is probably the best example of play and delight driving technological innovation that then ends up changing the world in completely uh, you know, kind of different fields. For instance, we tend to not celebrate this technology that much because it's ubiquitous now. But an alphanumeric keyboard, being able to type on a keyboard, think about how much time we spend typing, uh, most of us all day long. And yet the idea of using all 10 pads of your fingers to type letters and numbers is actually, bizarrely, one of these ideas that arrives very late in the history of technology. We don't have typewriters until something like 1870 or 1880, which is bizarre because we could have easily constructed and invented a typewriter in 1680. I mean, and there was a proof of concept with Gutenberg that building machines that allowed you to like manipulate type <laughs> was going to be lucrative and powerful. And yet somehow we couldn't come up with the idea. But when we did come up with the idea for typewriters, it came directly from music, from musical keyboards. We had musical keyboards for 2,000 years. The Romans had keyboards for their water-powered organs. Those became evolved into the clavichord keyboard, the harpsichord keyboard, then the pianoforte keyboard. And it wasn't really all the way until the middle of the 19th century that people started to say, hey, what if we took these keys and had them actually trigger letters instead of notes. And in fact, the first functioning typewriter that we would recognize as a typewriter was called the writing harpsichord. So it's a direct port from music into this other world, which then became essential to 20th century life.
0: Close connection uh, also, as you write the book, between music and the technology that came with music, uh, and then programming yeah. later on, coding.
1: Well, there, one of the kind of hero, groups of heroes in the book that show up on a couple chapters is these engineers in Baghdad the, and the height of the Islamic golden age, these brothers called the Banu Musa, and they are working in 1,200 years ago. And they came up with all these crazy kind of toy-like inventions that were automatons of various forms, brilliant engineering, all in the service of playthings, basically. But one of the things that they invented that we, we actually almost lost kind of a record of this, it was only discovered 100 a, a years ago in this obscure manuscript. They invented something called the instrument that plays itself. And it was basically a giant kind of music box. You could control the instrument and have it play the notes you wanted it to play by uh, using this kind of rotating metallic cylinder with little pins on it, like a music box would have the pins corresponding to the, the note and the length of the note you wanted the machine to play. But what was so radical about it, and the Banu Musa were very excited about this, and they wrote about it extensively in their kind of instructions for how to build this device, is that you could, if you wanted it to play a different song, you could take out the cylinder, encode a new one with different information, different notes, plug it in, and the machine would play a completely different song. They called it cutting. But this was a, re- this was a really profound breakthrough, because you, you could make the argument that that was the first programmable machine. It was a machine that was designed to specifically be recoded with new instructions on how it should behave. And in a way, the, the difference between hardware and software kind of opens up for the first time. Those those cylinders are like, you know, kind of software programs that you can swap out. And that idea, as radical as it was, pretty much stays in music for 600 years, 700 years even, um, before people then start thinking about applying it to, first to automatons, then to looms, to again, to textile production, and then finally... In Charles Babbage's work, the idea directly migrating from from these fields, you know, one after the other, Charles Babbage begins to think about it in terms of computation, and there you have the beginning of software as we know it.
0: Next up, pepper and spices, and a, a short list of uh, the things that came from this domain of play. Global trade, joint stock companies, the the wealth and richness of Venice for a little while at least, the spread of Islam, and Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
1: have a really fun – that chapter I dissect the um, ingredients list right at the top of the chapter of that, that comes on a package of Doritos. And uh, The Onion had a parody headline a few years ago where they said that Frito-Lay was celebrating its millionth ingredient <laughs> in, in Doritos. But, there are, you know, it's this crazy long list. But if, what I tried to do was to show how all these different flavors – are truly global. I mean they could literally come from all corners of the globe and that every time you, you know, <laughs> bite into a Dorito chip you're tasting the entire planet basically, which is an extraordinary thing. It doesn't necessarily make it <laughs> worthwhile to eat Doritos, but the so, so spice trade is really what began that process of uh, of globalization. It was the first truly global market. There's some amazing things. For, for instance, cloves until the late 1700s every single clove Consumed anywhere in the world was originally harvested on one of five islands, you know, kind of uh, east of Indonesia, the famous Spice Islands. Uh, They weren't able to grow the clove plant anywhere else in the world until the late 1700s. And yet, archaeologists have found remnants of cloves in the Middle East at a site that dates back to something like 2000 BC. So somehow, 2000 BC, Somebody sitting in ancient Babylon has no idea of the existence of Indonesia, certainly not less the, the, the Spice Islands, there are no kind of modern maps that can explain the relationship between these things, or no modern shipping, and yet somehow the signal of interest in that the taste of that clove is strong enough to set up a kind of relay chain to get that clove all the way to the, to the Middle East. That clove had almost certainly traveled farther than any human being had traveled at that point in the world, which is kind of amazing to think about. So it is the beginning of all this and we uh, – this is a part of the book where uh, you know the spice trade is something you do learn in school as a big force in driving kind of global historical change or, and exploration. Uh, Columbus was obviously looking for spices as part of his discovery of the new world. But I think we don't often stop and think about how crazy it was. I mean there's this obsession with – You know, basically condiments, you know, and pepper, right? Something now so ubiquitous that it's literally given away for free was, for a long period of time, worth its weight in gold and drove this both you know, connective globalist phase of history and also an incredibly brutal phase, you know, led to some of the worst abuses um, in the history of humanity in pursuit of spices. And they were
0: really hard to get back then. Like, to be clear, that's the intriguing uh, thing about it all is that when you compare side by side the pleasure you might get out of spices in your meal versus how expensive they were because how hard they are to get, it all seems quite out of proportion. Yeah. You know, and yet we still had this massive uh, global trading system established just for spices.
1: And and there's a lot th- that chapter spends a lot of time thinking about why we cared so much, uh, you know, why they were so much in demand. And one of them which I think is really important in the theme of globalization is that people really did have this feeling that they were tasting some other part of the world. There was this kind of almost quasi religious sense that these uh, kind of tropical regions that no no one could dream of ever going to were a literal kind of Garden of Eden, that this, this was some kind of Edenic place. And you couldn't see a movie of it. You couldn't, you know, see a photograph of that place, but you literally could taste something that originated there. So it was this weird form of, I don't know, sensory tourism with a a layer of kind of religious belief uh, tapped onto it. But it it was the beginning of that. And as you said... We still live with a lot of the kind of maps that were created from this exploration. So the the first integrated trade network that, that wasn't just kind of and people not part of the same kind of organization or institution to bring spices around the world were the Muslim spice traders right around that same period of the, the Baghdad brothers. And the map today of global Islam, the countries where Islam has a strong presence, is exactly the map of where those – spice traders did their business. All the places where Islam tried to force its way into a culture through military conquest like Spain, it really kind of fundamentally didn't stick. But places where the spice traders did their business, it did. And so we're, there's an argument that without the spice trade, Islam would not have become a global religion in the, in the first place. Um, certainly, it was integral to the to the process. So here you have this crazy thing where how, how much of your life and today's news is... Shaped by the location of people who are of Islamic origin, spices are part of that story.:
0: There's uh, something else that's uh, counterintuitive about the existence of the spice trade and what it led us to. For a very long time, kings and queens and other people were obsessed with the idea that the right combination of spices could help heal specific yeah. illnesses, specific diseases, you know, cancer and all these other things. It was all quite nonsense. Yeah. Right, but at the same time, the very idea that you could combine your foods in such a way as to systematically eradicate the bad stuff that was going on in your body was an idea that was still quite useful later when we did have the scientific tools to actually do it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that
1: up. In a sense, you can have a lot of fun, with, and and I try to have a little fun in the book with the actual kind of ingredients lists, like the Doritos ingredients list that they come up with for these remedies or cures or 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 medicines and just the amount of spices that are involved. You're like, oh, you have cancer. Well, cinnamon is definitely what you want to eat with these nineteen other, you know, ingredients. And it is kind of comical to us today. On the other hand, what was happening was, as you said, we were learning a higher level idea, which is that, you know, creating a kind of regimen of of ingredients and mixing them together and using them to treat Illnesses with a fixed you know kind of prescription was itself a good thing to to start practicing. We needed the scientific method we needed randomized control trials and a few other things to actually figure out what uh medicines worked, but that process of like assembling ingredients and then applying it as a medicine was something we also had to had to learn and, and kind of practice so it was a kind of rehearsal for real science that spices played a big role in as yeah. well yeah
0: I guess uh <laughs> A more tragic uh, impact, though, was that a lot of people thought that spices would help with curing the Black Plague. Actually, they had it the other way around. The Black Plague was probably transported to Europe on boats carrying rats from Southeast Asia, and those boats were themselves part of the spice trade. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that was not – it was the opposite. (laughs) It actually brought brought the plague rather than protected us against it.
0: Indeed. Uh, Next up, number four, let's talk about illusionists. Philip Stahl's uh, Phantasmagoria.
1: Yeah. Oh, this was so fun. This book was incredibly fun to research, but this was maybe my favorite chapter. There, If you if you you'd walked around London in 1800 or Paris and, and parts of New York or Philadelphia it, around that period in the kind of what we would now think of as the theater district, the west end of, of London, you would have, if you kind of blurred your eyes, it would look familiar. There would be kind of entertainment – Palaces promoting new shows, and you would say, "Okay, I get this." And this is theater, movies. Um, You wouldn't assume it was movies, but it was the equivalent of movies. But in fact, what was going on is there's this incredible Cambrian explosion of different kinds of illusion illusion shows that appeared during this period. The phantasmagoria was one of the first and most popular, and it was basically a kind of haunted house using magic lantern projections and actually electricity (laughs) machines to actually shock the patrons and smoke and literally smoke and mirrors and, and all these tricks and people would go in and see these projected kind of ghosts and get freaked out. But that was just one. There were, And there were a bunch of knockoffs of the phantasmagoria, kind of horror shows in one form or another. But there were also things like the panorama, um, the 360-degree painting often of battles or of a rooftop view of London. The word panorama was actually coined as a, as a brand name for this, for this experience. And then there were shows of kind of mechanical dolls. There were recreations using automatons of major military battles. And they, had, they all had these crazy you know, kind of Greek names that you can't even pronounce. And so you had this period where there were just this obsession with kind of tricking the eye and the senses into seeing things that weren't there, creating the illusion that you were in the middle of a battle. And they were amazing entertainments. And they basically all were wiped off the map by cinema, like they're like this kind of again it's a rehearsal, like there's some way where people are going to gather into room, pay money and get fooled into thinking that they're somewhere else we're not sure what it's going to be, so let's try all these experiments and then eventually cinema arrives and wipes them all off the map
0: okay, snow White twelve frames per second uh and phase transitions Disney oh, comes back yet yeah, again yeah,
1: yeah, so there's an argument that that the book makes, which is the the whatever it is 7 or 8 years that separates disney's original mickey mouse short that he makes called the steamboat willie short and snow white which he makes you know a few years later that the the creative and technical leap forward between those two forms of animation is one of the most extraordinary creative and technical leaps forward in the history of art <laughs> if you look at them they're just completely different things and and in the book i go through all of the innovations that Disney and his team had to come up with to create Snow White. And it's incredible, the, the levels of uh, creativity and, and technical ingenuity that they had to, to transform this thing. But one of the, as they were making Snow White, as they started to see the, the first, you know, kind of the equivalent of Rush's with actual animation with voice and some music, they had this interesting thing where they were like, is it possible that people will cry when they see this, where they'll be so moved by these hand-drawn characters who are not alive, and up until just recently, they were just ridiculous little kind of slapstick, you know, sketch drawings that were brought to life. Have we created something so vivid that we actually are moved to tears? And in fact, when they showed Snow White, the, the audience is kind of, you know, the first night at the premiere, the audience is like audibly weeping at that kind of final scenes, and it was this kind of extraordinary thing that where you could trick your emotions. Uh, with this kind of crazy form of animation, into feeling something so profound that you were crying was an extraordinary breakthrough. And so, in that chapter, I talk about this interesting thing that happens. You know, we know about persistence of vision, or the the, the effect that we all have at somewhere around twelve, fourteen frames per second, we see motion, uh, even if all the individual frames are still images, right? That's the illusion that all of you know television and cinema relies on. And of course we can't what's interesting, like we can't not see that, right? You know it's an illusion, but there's no way to tell your brain, say, oh actually look at this as a series of images. You have to see that that motion there. And there's a a similar thing that happens when you combine motion with sound and particularly with the close-up, where you see another human being or even a hand-drawn creature talking and you see their face up close. It creates this feeling of really knowing that person, and it's almost impossible not to form kind of emotional connections with people represented with that level of kind of realism. And that creates one of the unintended consequences of that technological breakthrough is that it creates this really strange attachment that we have now to celebrities, right? There were celebrities in the 19th century – But there were far fewer of them, and they were generally people who had actually done kind of significant things in the world or were royalty. But once you have this 12 frames per second close-ups and audio, you get – that is what leads directly to the Kardashians. That's what leads directly to the sense of like, oh, I've seen that person on TV. I must feel this kind of emotional connection to it. And think about how much of the world is shaped by those kinds of – strange attachments to people who we will never meet by definition. I mean, people we don't know, but somehow we feel that we do, this kind of one-way connection to this person that we see on a screen. I think what that's really interesting is that we are remarkably close, I think, to a similar kind of emotional illusion with AI, and that the second you know Siri or Alexa start to be able to actually kind of come up with nuanced conversational responses that are based on a long history of interacting with you, the human, where you're training your kind of voice AI to to develop a certain personality that kind of literally knows you. I mean, Siri and Alexa do not know who you are on any level. They really are not custom-tailored to you and your appetites and your interests and, and your history. But that's coming. And I think we are incredibly vulnerable to being fooled into forming these emotional relationships with with people we're never going to know or you know just pixels on a screen or the particularly the voice of a simulated being and that's going to be weird people are going to develop you know intense emotional connections to these disembodied computer voices and it's going to happen like in the next 5 years i'm convinced and that's going to be it's going to be her basically it's going to be the spike jones movie and that is going to be a very weird place to be as a society. It all
0: started with uh, some magic shows uh, in London's West right, End. Right, exactly. you know? yeah, Very, <laughs> very cool. Uh, okay, the next chapter is games. Games leading to uh, the development of probability theory. Games uh, leading to metaphorical thinking. Games as the first instance of, uh, I guess, open source yeah. uh, development of rules and things like that.
1: One of the things you see... People are always trying to figure out who invented popular games, right? There's like Abner Doubleday invented baseball, and that's why the Baseball Hall of Fame was in Cooperstown and all that stuff. It's just totally <laughs> made up. Abner Doubleday, as far as we know, had nothing to do with baseball at all. And, and there is this kind of quest to find the original inventor, but it, it's it's unfortunate, I think, because games are as you as you allude to that they're the one of the great early examples of what is really kind of an open source model of development where you have people, a global open source model of development where people all around the world, um, without having kind of proprietary ownership over it, contribute ideas and rules and tweaks and, you know, modifications to the game. And the game kind of evolves as it as it travels around the world. You know, chess basically was developed in dozens of countries, it kind of comes out of India, but then is modified through Europe. And, the, you know, for years they're try, try, trying to get the balance of the game right. Like the queen was closer to the king in the sense they had very limited powers in chess for a long, long time until I think the fifteen hundreds or sixteen hundreds, where suddenly they were like, oh wait, we could we can make the queen more powerful and it's a more interesting game. People briefly introduced dice into chess for a while. They're like, there should be a little bit of gambling kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> and that but that got eliminated. So that process of inventing a game collectively and tinkering with it over the over centuries and doing it across international borders, you know, now we, you know, we we think it's really cool that something like Wikipedia could be created by people all over the world and with, without anybody kind of actually proprietarily owning their contributions. But in fact, games are really the first place where that happened.
0: Yeah, you you make this point also that um, games usually provide you with some way of measuring whether you're making progress or not, which is probably why they have such a close connection again to later on computing.
1: Games and, and AI and computing have always been about, I mean, Turing's first speculations about artificial intelligence and the Turing test are in the context of, could a computer be made to play a good game of chess? Uh, you know, that was this kind of opening question in a way, and and we've seen that in mean, all these milestones of Deep Blue and Watson, uh, the IBM supercomputer, you know, train, the, I mean, there's something beautiful about, there two things that are beautiful about Watson. One that they trained one of the the closest things to a genuinely intelligent machine on the, on the planet. And they they got it to this level of intelligence by training it to win at Jeopardy, right? it Famously beat Ken Jennings at Jeopardy. And that was their kind of thing. Like, well, how are we going to train a computer to be really smart? Well, let's have it play on a game show. But also one of the w- ways in which they trained Watson was they had the machine basically ingest all of Wikipedia. And so there's something kind of lovely about that, too, that you – you know, the closest thing, one of the most advanced forms of artificial intelligence on the planet was kind of collectively programmed by all of us writing (laughs) Wikipedia entries over the years, uh, which the computers will have a good laugh at when they finally take over.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you you mentioned at one point that so much of this book could serve as a useful creation myth uh, later on when the robots are finally in charge. (laughs) Uh, Okay, the, the final example, and this was my personal favorite chapter, public spaces. You mentioned taverns as places of Revolutionary fervor. Uh, there is something that's both social and secretive about a good pub, but we can't avoid talking about the story of John Houston and his integrationist pub uh, right here in New York.
1: Yeah, there, there was a uh, one of one of the most um, atrocious episodes, uh, kind of state-sponsored racial violence, happened here in New York, and it, it was again there was there was a pub that this guy. Uh, ran very close to actually where we are. I mean, kind of on the west side, near near the uh, Hudson River, and it was this was uh, I can't remember exactly what year 17, 1730s, 730s, yeah. And he ran this pub, and it was it was basically a uh, unusual at the time. It was a racially integrated pub where you could have there were there were African Americans there, there were freed slaves, there were slaves, and there were whites who were hanging out, including some kind of well to do whites who were. We didn't have the, the phrase slumming it, um, which was then developed in the 19th century, but we kind of enjoyed hanging out with the lower classes or having these scandalous interactions with African-Americans. And uh, basically, there was a, a series of crimes, and one person who worked in the pub kind of ratted out, we, we think maybe, not truthfully, the proprietor and a few of these. Uh, there were pro- there were also—it was kind of a brothel as well, so they were everything was going on there. And— The accusation was that they were planning basically a slave revolt. It seems like really it was just kind of a low-grade kind of crime scene going on there. But it led to uh, these terrible public hangings and the bodies of these people were like hung out in public, like kind of decaying for weeks um, as a message. And it was specifically – if you read the kind of the the legal debate over the case, the big offense is the audacity of a white man kind of serving drinks – to a black man in a, in a bar. Um, that was a thing that just had outraged people so much. So, uh, you know, as, as we said at the outset, bars are places where new kind of possibilities of social interaction become visible. And sometimes they're so far ahead of their time, they end up in terrible backlashes in the case of that pub.
0: Yeah, I should note uh, one other uh, pleasing symmetry in the book. Um which is that in the case of uh, fashion, certainly, uh, music, uh, and now with public spaces, bars and coffee shops, um, you have these, again, egalitarian, democratizing effects. And the reason I I say that it's a pleasing symmetry is that play is something that is universally available, Mm. right? And yes, it's true that if you have more money and more leisure time, you can indulge in more play. But at least in theory, we all can access that part of our brain that engages in delight and wonder and joy. And I sort of like this idea that this one part of the of the mind that is definitely available to everybody also leads to a kind of leveling force societally.
1: Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And, and you know, that chapter ends with uh, another innovation that is low tech, but was truly transformative, which is great urban parks. The idea that we should carve out space in our big bustling growing cities and create these spaces devoted exclusively to leisure and, and amusement and recreation and and play that belong to everyone. You know, that was a great idea and i was just this morning uh walking my dog in prospect park in in brooklyn and while it's kind of wintry and bleak out um, it is an amazing invention and and when you go you know the book ends with this uh that at least that chapter ends with this kind of reverie about going to prospect park on the 4th of july and seeing this whole global culture that's there i mean you see kind of people from every country in the world hanging out you know Grilling burgers and listening to music and playing frisbee and all this stuff, and everybody's—I mean—that is an incredible achievement that you have this multicultural society sharing a public space devoted to leisure and amusement that's been specifically designed for that for the for everyone to enjoy. That's a particularly now more than ever probably that that's the the achievement of that is something that we should be celebrating.
0: Uh, let me ask you something about the way that play and certainly adult play is understood now. There's this uh, massive industry that's existed for decades, at least, on how to improve personal efficiency, yeah. right how to yeah. squeeze the most out of your time. And you know if you have a job that you want to get ahead in, plus you have a marriage, plus you have kids uh, between you know making sure that you keep up to speed on your skills uh, and keeping your marriage intact uh, or your other friendships intact um, and making sure you're a good parent, we have a lot of ideas for how to do those things, right? And to for how to make the most out of each day. It's always seemed to me that play, the time that we take for pure leisure has to exist outside of those boundaries. It has to exist outside of this idea that personal productivity is sort of, you know, the thing we should all be chasing. I don't even really have a question here. Yeah. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah. Do you think that not enough attention is given to uh, the very real benefits, not just for your own personal sanity, but for society yeah. um, of adults having a little time uh, just to have some fun. It's a great question. In fact,
1: the book really doesn't deal with that because I didn't – the book is really a, an argument about history, right? And I didn't want to – all the time in my mind I was thinking, well, this could be applied in these ways to people's lives or their work environments or whatever it is but I wanted to kind of in a way keep it free from that or just have that be kind of a latent theme that was there but we did talk we we did a podcast that people can find if they search Wonderland podcast and we one of the things we did with that show was to explore some of those themes a little bit more but I think you're you're absolutely right that it first off you can think about play as a, at least hopefully playing an important role in some of those domains like for instance I just went through this great experience which I wrote about it um online at Medium about designing a board game with my son, like, which is a great experience, and I won't get into the, all the details of it, but that, we spent a summer basically dreaming up this game, experimenting with it, coming up with the rules, and it was incredibly fun and also unbelievably rich kind of cognitive exercise to do and and great bonding with your kids. So it's, it's a kind of play family time that's also good for the brain. But I think about it in terms of, you know, work. I think people sometimes get it wrong in terms of the causality when they look at, the, you know, Google Plex and other high-tech kind of campuses. And they're like, well, look at all the foosball tables and the volleyball courts and all the, you know, video game systems and all that kind of stuff. Like, these are the perks you get when your company is incredibly successful and profitable. Like, you have all these, like, fun things to do so they can attract people or, or, you know, reward them for being so good at what they do. But, in fact, I think it's actually one of the reasons why those companies are so successful is they recognize early on there's always been... In in kind of the the recent uh, Silicon Valley tech scene, a, a sense that a creative, playful imagination is crucial to being innovative and, and being good at your job, and and by creating a work environment where there is that blurring of the line between work and play, that actually makes them perform better. So there is a there is a functional argument for it, obviously, that the book is making in the sense of the connection between innovation and play. Um, but there's also just a I think also just a human argument for it, right? That it is a part of who we are. It's always been a part of who we've been as a species. And and other species play, but not with as much imagination and, uh, (laughs) you know, focus and and persistence as as humans do. And that we have that as part of who we are um, and that we have these institutions that now express that side of us I think is uh, something we should be excited about.
0: Yeah, it's a great point about the idea that what used to be considered play has essentially been absorbed by a lot of modern day jobs. I mean, uh, I think of my own job where I essentially get to traffic in ideas all day. Yeah. And there's at least, you know, a few times a week and sometimes a few times a day where I come across something new and think, holy shit, that's awesome. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. great. That's fascinating. And I consider that, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Right. Um, but that might be something where, you know, 100 years ago, I would have worked in a plant and I would have had to pursue the realm of ideas and things that interest me on the side. Now, I guess, like you said, uh, the lines are somewhat blurred. Uh, Let me ask you another question. Do you think it's possible that the process of the things we find we enjoy doing moving to something that has a big societal effect uh, is starting to quicken? Uh, Mm. I, I, I can think of a couple of examples where maybe that's the case, but I also might be thinking about it the wrong way. One is just social media, which was invented to share pictures and to hang out with your friends, ends up helping topple a dictatorship uh, in Egypt, right? Another is just from my own, you know...
1: (laughs) Or impose one. Or impose one and impose one. Well, but,
0: you know, and that's one of the lessons we learn over time is that, you know, uh, social media can be great for dismantling something um, and that can have both positive and sometimes negative effects. Um, But still, it's an effect. The other is just, you know, when I was a kid... I loved remote control cars, and I loved what existed then that resembled uh, the drones of now—those little remote-controlled helicopters and things. Well, we're about to get uh, driverless cars yeah. everywhere, and we already have drones doing all kinds of um, extraordinary things. Uh, I—it it seems like it's possible that, that that everything is 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 speeding up, but I, I don't really know how to think about it exactly.
1: Well, two things are happening. Yeah, things are speeding up. Oh, they're not speeding up. That's the one thing. We we actually aren't going faster. That that has slowed down. There are you know in, in eighteen hundred the fastest you could go was a horse, and then you could go you know twenty miles an hour, or whatever that is, and then you could go forty. And then you could go speed of sound and beyond. And now, with the end of the Concord, we've actually slowed down our ability to project ourselves through space has slowed down. But in terms of communication and technology and and all of that, it is accelerating because of Moore's law and other forces. And I think those unintended consequences are, are rolling in faster for sure. What has changed too, though, I have noticed this because I've been writing about this my whole life, um, is that we're better at projecting forward a bit and and thinking about those unintended consequences. This is this is a big thing in, in this new book that I'm working on about decisions because when you're making decisions, particularly social decisions, it's all about predicting the future, right? I, I think we should do this versus this. Well, what are the consequences going to be five years from now or ten years from now when you're making a choice? And so we have to get better at, at at least imagining what those scenarios would be. And and the best example of this is um, the debate about superintelligence and artificial intelligence. You know, is there some scenario where we create machines that are so much smarter than we are that we can't understand what they're thinking? And would that be dangerous to us? There's a big, you know, debate. Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, all these people have kind of weighed in on it. You probably talked about it on this podcast. One of the things I find so fascinating about that is that As human beings, we are having this conversation about a problem that, by definition, we're pretty sure won't happen for another 30 to 50 years, maybe 100 years. And so we're sitting there saying, like, well, there's this thing that might happen down the line as an unintended consequence of these innovations that we're doing in artificial intelligence. Let's think about whether it's likely to happen. And if it is likely to happen, do we, you know, should we be concerned? And what should we do now to alter that effect? Human beings have never thought that way before. It would be the equivalent of people sitting around in 1800, you know, inventing, the, you know the industrial revolution and saying well these new steam powered machines are really pretty great but they are outputting a little bit of carbon into the atmosphere we should probably think about alternate forms of energy so that we can you know no one thought that way because no one could project forward that far but now we we are able to think on those scales we're we're just starting
0: to think on that scale yeah it's like the mainstreaming of science fiction yeah no 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 and and kevin
1: kelly actually great writer has said that basically you begin to realize that science fiction is kind of like an infrastructure at this point, like that you need to have literature out there that's rehearsing all these alternate futures so that we can begin to think about what we should be doing now. It's a really vital, it's proving to have a really vital social function, which is terrible because I've read almost no science yes. fiction, so I feel like I'm completely blind to this, but I'll have to pick it up.
0: The book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Our guest has been the author, uh, Stephen Johnson. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Thank you. And that is the end of our interview. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. For our overseas listeners, that is plus one country code. Or email us at alphachat at ft.com and rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Stephen, you're on Twitter with like uh, a couple of million followers. Uh, where are you? 1.3, but who's counting? <laughs> uh, uh, Stephen B. Johnson. Stephen B. Johnson on Twitter. And there are show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Finally, our producer and editor Amy Keen makes what should be work feel like play all the time. Thanks for everything. everything amy and thanks to our listeners we'll see you here again next week for another edition of alpha chat